So we're coming, uh, we're, we're, we're coming towards, I'd like to say we're coming towards the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, but um, I think we're six or seven messages in and we've got four to go. So how about we say we're approaching the final stretch. Uh, we, we have four to go and, and these are four warnings that, that Jesus leaves at the end of, of his uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and uh, each warning is a, a comparison of, of two ways that we're going to look at today, two trees next week, and then in a few weeks after that, two claims and two builders. And uh, as, as we've seen throughout this series, right from the beginning of Matthew 5, this sermon of Jesus on the mount is all about kingdom living. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of heaven? So if you've got your Bibles with you, open with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to just read two verses this morning. Verse 13 and verse 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus presents us here with with two gates, two ways or or two paths. The Greek for these uh, can be translated in either of those ways as gates, ways or, or paths. The wide gate is chosen by many. It's the the path of least resistance. It's the easiest one to follow and its end is in destruction. The narrow gate, Jesus says, is chosen by few. It is hard. It's a difficult path to follow, but it leads to life. One further observation worth noting at this point is that the word that Jesus uses to describe this narrow way as hard is tethlemene. Try saying that, tethlemene. Tethlemene. And that comes from the same root, the same derivation as the word that we use, that we translate tribulation. Think about that for, the, for a minute. Jesus is saying, narrow is the path that leads to life. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And it is marked by tribulation. It is marked by tribulation. Some of you might be thinking, but hang on, doesn't Revelation say that we're going to be spared tribulation? Well, the short answer to that is no. Sorry, it doesn't. A slightly more complete answer mirrors what Jesus is saying here, and, and I talked a bit about this last week, and that you know, we often approach an issue or a topic or a situation and we find that we're asking the wrong question. And, and to look at Revelation, to look at end times, to look at the path, the narrow way, and, and to be focused on tribulation, we're, we're focusing in on the wrong thing. Because what Revelation focuses on and, and what Jesus is focusing on here with the narrow way is life, is the hope of glory. So that brings me to the key question for this morning. What is life? Jesus says that the the narrow way that is chosen by few ends in life. 
But there's got to be something significant here because don't we all share the same life? Don't we all live and breathe together in the same earth, in the same place? And yet some can, can go in and choose to live life however they please, to pursue the things that make them comfortable, to pursue the things that they desire in their heart. And yet Jesus is saying, no, that's going to lead to destruction. What he's saying is that that is not life. For us as, as Christians, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we find out what it really means to follow Jesus, what it really means to repent, what it really means to be born again in the image of God. When we understand what Jesus is talking about life, we understand the fruits and the benefit, the blessing of being in the family of God. You see, God has got a, a very different perspective and value for life than we inherently do. And he always has. We find this sentiment of God's life, God's view of life, right back in the book of Deuteronomy. You remember Deuteronomy as part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. Deuteronomy was, was is actually, the word Deuteronomy, Deutero means second. And it's the second telling of the law. Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy to help the, the younger generation in the, wandering in the wilderness to understand who they were as the people of Israel, that their identity was formed and created by the liberation of God from Egypt. When God liberated them from Egypt, when God even before then called Abraham, that, that Israel... Their place and their purpose, their value was as the people of God. And the generation that were liberated out of Egypt walked for 40 days and came to the edge of the promised land. They sent spies out into the promised land and when the reports came back, they were afraid and they refused to follow God into the promised land. So for 40 years, they wandered in the desert and that generation would never enter the promised land. But in that 40 years, God raised up a generation that would. A generation that, that boldly and courageously, faithfully trusted in God to go into the unknown. To face unforeseen challenges and obstacles far greater than they could comprehend. Trusting that God was in control, that he had a plan and a purpose. And, and that's the situation, that's the context into which Moses is, is writing Deuteronomy. He's writing it to, to make sure that the Israelites, this younger generation, some of whom are those under 12 years of age when the Exodus happened, would still have been a part of this generation to go into the Promised Land. How exciting is that? That there were those who even lived through it that were not held accountable for the decisions of Israel not to go in the first time, got to be a part of it. And, and so in the book of Deuteronomy, right towards the end, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we read this. God saying to Israel, For this commandment that I've commanded you today is not too hard for you, Neither is it far off. It is not in, in, in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it. 
Neither is it beyond the sea that we, you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. Doesn't that sound similar to what Jesus is referring to here? The, the way that leads to righteousness, the way that leads to holiness, the way that leads to life. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we earn our righteousness. We don't. We can't. And we, we've dealt with that when we looked at the fulfillment of the law and the application of the heart of the law. We, we do this as a result, and this is what we're going to explore a bit more again this morning. That we do it as a result of being redeemed, of being forgiven. It goes hand in hand. In hand. And he says, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today... You, you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, therefore, I love this part. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land of the Lord, your, your, the land the Lord your Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. Oh, I love this because we, we see unveiled, unwrapped before us God's heart and God's intent and how often have we, we been told or, or led to believe that the Old Testament represents this God who is vengeful, a God who is, is out with spite and anger to destroy the unrighteous. Yet here in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 19 and 20, we see God's heart unveiled before us. What is his desire? That we choose life. That we enter into an intimate relationship with God, loving the Lord our God. That we obey His voice, holding fast to Him. Why? Because it is life itself. The expectation of the law for Israel was not something too impossible or too difficult to follow. It was simply that they let it remain in their hearts and in their mouths. We, we, we've seen earlier in Deuteronomy throughout this series as we reflected back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we have the, what's called the Shema. It's what Jesus quoted when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. 
And then following on from that, the command was to, to, to write it on your doorpost, to teach it to your children, to bind it on the back of your hand and between the frontlets of your eyes. Let it be the motivation. Let it be the driving compulsion for your actions and your thoughts and your attitudes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. And that's essentially what, what he's saying here again. The first problem that we face as Christians is that for the most part, we only like the first half of the gospel, the first half of the good news, and that is the freedom and forgiveness part. Instead of just blatantly ignoring the rest, we idealize it. We make it a matter of thought and intention rather than practice. But as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Think about that for a minute. How often do we say, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe in God and I trust in God. But when crisis comes along, we, we run around like headless chooks instead of falling on our knees in prayer. We talk about, God, I, I trust that you're going to be able to do the impossible. But how often do we actually allow God to work in the impossible? How often do we allow him that space to, to trust him and, and leave the impossible in his hands? We, we talk about following Jesus. But how often do we withhold in our heart bitterness, anger, hatred, jealousy this is what what Jesus is talking about here this is what I'm what we're getting to here is that we like the first part we like the idea of being forgiven being set free from our sin but we're not really if we're honest there's, there's a lot of times where we're not really willing to let go of the rest Maybe, maybe you've caught yourself saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry about this, but that's just how I am. You know, that's an excuse to say, I, I recognize that what I've said, what I've done, my attitudes, my actions, may, maybe it's, it's a, a, an excuse not to be compassionate, not to be generous, we just say, well, look, that's just how I am. It's, it, it, we're, we're making this excuse to sort of say, well, that's, that's a part of the gospel. That's a part of following Jesus that I'm not willing to go with. You know, that's, that's one of these ways that we're not fully taking a hold of this narrow way. And it's difficult. It's hard. It's not easy. It's moments like these that we can see that following God has become an intellectual exercise for us. We've thought about it. We believe in God as the almighty creator. We, we acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God, that he came and he died. And knowing all of that, like the rich young ruler we walk away from God, never taking hold of the good news in our hearts. 
Notice here that the problem in itself is not the mistake that we make. It's not the sin that we do that's wrong. Or that we've gone about it in the wrong way. It's that in our hearts, we're not prepared to surrender that sinful part of ourselves to God that we're holding on to. In Deuteronomy, we see that that God had set the people of Israel free. They were free from Egypt. Free from slavery. Free from the oppression of the Egyptians who told them what they had to do and when they had to do it and how they had to do it. But there's another half to being set free. It's not just what you're set free from. It's what you're set free to. Israel was set free to be God's nation of priests, to be his chosen people through whom all the world would see and know God's love and God's glory and God's majesty, God's grace and God's mercy, God's justice and righteousness and God's forgiveness. But that can only happen if they would choose life. But instead, we often wander back and take a hold of Egypt just as the Israelites did in the wilderness, complaining we had it better back in Egypt. And as Christians too, we get caught on this narrow way, holding firmly to the easy, wide path, holding back our our sinful desires. and, And yet God is saying you cannot have life while you continue to hold on to the brokenness of your life. We want to be free to continue life our way. But Paul in Romans 6, 1 to 11 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died, uh, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never again die. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ in God. And Paul goes on elsewhere and he talks about what that means is that we we no longer go on making a practice of sinning. It doesn't mean that we are, are from that point on perfect in all righteousness and godliness. 
but it means that we have surrendered, that we have crucified our sinful desires, our selfish desires on the cross with Christ. And as he says, it is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. That's what it means to follow Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means that in our hearts and in our mouths, we live for God. And when the work of the Holy Spirit is done in convicting us of our sin as a a continual work, we lay down our sinfulness time and again. Not in order to gain our righteousness before God. Because that's already been done on the cross with Jesus. We lay it down time and again to honor and glorify and worship God. Because we are reborn in his image. We want to be free to define what is good and right in our own lives. Ever felt like that? The problem is that our hearts, mankind's heart is inclined to evil and God's heart is good. In, In Matthew 15, 18 and 19, Jesus said, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. He's talking there about the criticism of of those who would go and eat without regard of where their food has come from. And there was a complaint brought to Jesus about people eating unclean food and, and, and that that was defiling their bodies. And Jesus said, no, you've got to get this right. It's not about the ritual following of the law it's about the relational engagement with the heart of the law you got to understand that that what defiles you before God is not in what you eat but what comes out of your heart in Genesis 8 we have this beautiful picture that that really sets apart the godliness of God the righteousness the holiness of God from the inclinations of man and it comes not before the flood but after the flood not in a moment where we see the worst of mankind let's have a look Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 then Noah built this is after the flood waters have receded after they'd left they'd stepped out of the ark Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What is remarkable about this promise from God, this elevation of his glory and majesty and righteousness, is that there is an acknowledgement from God that he knows that mankind is deceitful in, in all our ways from our youth. And yet in his heart, in his desire... He is inclined to show us grace. We see that again in Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. You know that question that that is often around, you know, if God is so good, 
Why is there so much evil in the world? Isaiah gives us the answer. Because God is waiting. Deeply desiring that everyone would come to know him. That he would be able to be gracious to everyone. That's why he is waiting. That's why we see so much of of the evilness of mankind flourishing in the world. Because God is waiting to provide time to be gracious before that day, that final day of judgment. The the final excuse that I want to focus on today is we, we 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 want freedom to excuse ourselves from the parts of Jesus that aren't comfortable, that are inconvenient, that don't really fit with where we want our lives to be. In Luke 9, 57 to 62, we see a series of people who want to follow Jesus, but they've got other priorities. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said to me, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who says, God, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to live for you, but I need to hang on to these things is fit for the kingdom of God. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot follow Jesus and hang on to the things that the world values. There's much more that I could say about that passage and and, uh, we'll definitely come back to that um, for a whole message of its own uh, at a later date. But ultimately, we want forgiveness. But deep down in our hearts, we wrestle because deep within ourselves, we don't want to admit that we don't know what's best. We don't want to give up living our own way. We want salvation and all that God offers, but we want it on our terms, when and how it suits us. The problem is that it just can't work that way. When you're dealing with woodwork, and I enjoy enjoy my woodwork, we were working on a, a... when we were in Gladstone, we'd bought a place that was a bit of a fixer-upper and um, I'd set a plan during my holidays of, of about three or four weeks to paint the front of the house. I had the scaffolding there. Um, it was up, still up nine months later. I think it took me nine months to paint the front of the house because you think painting the front of an old Queenslander is going to be easy, right? You just strip off the old paint, put on some primer. I even had an airless sprayer. You spray on the primer, spray on the top coats, you're all good. That was until I found, after stripping back the paint, rotten wood. And with rotten wood, you can't just leave it there or the rot will spread. You can't just sandwich some good wood either side of it because the rot is there and it will continue to spread and, and, and affect all that is around it. For, for the, the nurses and doctors amongst us. The same is true with deep infection. When infection gets into a part of your body, 
uh, and it turns gangrenous. At that point, there is no saving it. You can't just say to the doctor, but, you know, I really like my hand. (laughs) Can't you just wrap it up, put a bandage on it? She'll be right, mate. No, the doctor will say. We have to cut out all of that infected, dead flesh. And sometimes that means the removal of a limb. And if you don't, the result is exactly what Jesus is saying. To hold on to the ways that are easy, the path that is easy, it leads to death and destruction. The sinfulness that exists in our heart that is, is natural to us, that is, that, it, that is inherently there with us, that we are accustomed to, that we are comfortable with, it's like gangrene in our body. We can't follow Jesus' way, the way to life, and have it still a part of us. That's why Jesus says we need to leave it behind. Because ultimately, whether it be money, a house, a car, it'll never be enough. It'll never fully satisfy it. It'll never bring certainty and hope But Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus offers. That's exactly what life is with God. We are are no longer defined by our own achievements, our own successes. We're we're no longer defined by how much money we can save in our bank or uh, all of the things that we could accomplish. Because ultimately, they fade away. Recently, we've, we've had the Olympics and, uh, you know, I've been watching Olympic ceremonies and, and uh, Commonwealth Games all my life. One thing that I've noticed is that we never hear about the people who held the world record two or three times ago, do we? So the glory that we have in our success and achievement and, and these athletes devote their entire lives for years and decades, to achieving the best, to being able to beat everybody else on the planet. But eventually, that remarkable achievement will be washed away. It will be forgotten. It will become insignificant when nobody cares about it. But what Jesus offers us is a way to redefine life to redefine our our worth and our value. He says, we're not defined by what we can do. We're defined by how much God loves us. I want you to think about that for a minute. He says, how much God loves each one of us is what defines our value. The God who, who spoke all life into being. The God who created all of the stars and placed them throughout the universe in their, their orbits. The God who created all of the plants and all of the animals and all of the laws of, of nature and physics and, and science and mathematics that we, we've spent lifetimes. We've spent all of creation discovering yet we still don't know the depth and magnitude of all of them yet. We can't fathom it. That God is the same God that knitted each one of us together in our mother's wombs. That God is the same God that sent his son 
to die for us. That God is a God who declared that he loves us. And when I consider that, nothing I can do could ever come close to comparing to that value. That's what it means. That's the the benefit, that's the fruit of following the narrow path. I want to tell you this morning, it is not free. It is not free. It is not a free gift because it will cost you everything you've got. It requires that you lay down everything you've got, everything you've had, everything you desire. It requires that we surrender our hearts to follow him. So this morning, I just want to finish with God's words in Deuteronomy. The challenge before us, the heart that God, the desire that God has for us. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast for him. For he is your life and the length of days. Let's pray. Lord, it is a hard thing to be confronted with the reality of our sinfulness. Lord, to examine our hearts in such a way that exposes all of the things that we we are still clinging on to. Lord, the things that are, are stopping us from knowing your grace and your mercy, from comprehending and living in your love and living out your love. But Lord, our desire deep in our heart today is that following you is more than an intellectual exercise. Following you for us may be life itself. So Lord, we humbly ask this morning that you would lead us. Lead us in your ways. Lead us in your love. And lead us in our lives.